Bike Karma Bicycle Stories podcast is brought to you with support from The Frame and Wheel, helping you turn your cycling items into cash without the hassle. And AD Bikes, the modern face of Ostra Daimler bicycles. Become bike, become AD Bikes. Hello and welcome to the Bike Karma Bicycle and Cycling Stories podcast. I'm your host, Tom Brown. The mission of the show is to bring bicycle-loving people from all over the world together to share stories and make connections. It doesn't matter if you like wrenching or riding, whether you'd rather race or collect, and it doesn't matter if you're an expert or a newbie. If you've ever smiled about a bicycle, then you're in the right place. In this episode, we hear all about classic Schwinn's from Danny in Tucson, Arizona. I cruise around an electric bike while pondering about electric bikes. And we hear again from David Matthews from Bicycle Friendly Atlanta. He'll do our ABC Quick Check today and also tell us about what was behind all the ghost bikes that he's helped to place. You have a crazy amount of podcasts that you could be listening to, and I really appreciate you coming along for the ride with me on mine. Let's roll out. So as you know, the mission of the show is to bring bicycle-loving people from all over the world together to share stories. The story of the bicycle, the huge, long, single story of the bicycle, would not be complete without knowing about Schwinn's. Schwinn bicycles were a force to be reckoned with. They were a juggernaut of a company. They were innovative on so many levels. Marketing, design, business model, quality control. And while they are very, very plentiful, they were the creme de la creme for most Americans back in the day. They were the Cadillac of bikes. Some would argue better than Cadillac. And while you can go to your new big box retailer and buy a bike that has the name Schwinn on it, many collectors, even though they love the name, don't consider the new bikes to be true Schwinns. Now this is an opinion, as they are actually Schwinn bikes, and to be fair, some of them are pretty decent quality. But to most collectors, Schwinn bikes refer to all the bikes made by Schwinn up through the Chicago era. When the company stopped producing bicycles in Chicago, many enthusiasts see this as the end of that Schwinn era. So when you go to a swap meet and you talk about a Schwinn, you're really, inf it's inferred that you're talking about Chicago Schwinn's. Now, during that time, there were Schwinn's made in other places that were of similar quality, but different. But as I understand it, these were more specialty bikes or specialty subsets of bikes. So we're gonna talk with Danny from Tucson. Danny is a Schwinn guy through and through. But what I like about him is that even though he loves Schwinn's, he can see the value in other bikes. He just chooses the Schwinn. Now, fortunately, one of the mysteries of the internet was that this particular recording, the audio got weird sometimes. I did my absolute best to try and tweak it so it'd sound as good as I could make it sound. So I'm gonna ask you to do me a favor for this one part. For this one story when the audio doesn't sound perfect, just forgive it. 
I say this with a big please and thank you. As I listen to it myself, I hear the audio getting a little wonky. As soon as you start to notice it, it gets better. So just imagine you're talking to a really good friend. You finally connected back up with them and the signal strength isn't great, but you can still make out the conversation. One thing that still definitely comes through is Danny's passion for these Schwins. It's like he takes you right under his wing and tells you all about him and what he loves about him. So get ready to hear why Schwinn bicycles have such a cult-like following and why those Chicago Schwins are truly a breed of their own. Um, but they were always an excellent bike. They were always a very stylish bike. They were typically made mostly in America, but when they did farm things out to other countries, it was countries like Germany and Sweden and things like that. So they were always built with very, very good quality materials. And the craftsmanship to me is like no other. I've been into them for two thirds of my life. I love them to death and I see other bikes and a lot of guys like other bikes. So I try to get interested in try and figure out what the mystique is. And I, I just can't wrap my mind around anything but Schwinn's and that's just me. Hey, I'm Danny. I am a certified Schwinn fanatic. I'm from Tucson, Arizona. And I've been buying, selling, trading, building Schwinn's for about 25, 30 years now. All right, so like, what do people think of when they think of the name Schwinn? All right, so in my experience, I run across a lot of different people, a lot of older folks. Me, myself, I'm 47 years old, so when I say older folks, I mean like 50 and above, and that's not a, a reference to age, but just older than me. I sort of missed the, the Stingray era myself, but I was always really interested in them watching various television shows and movies that had Stingrays in them. I have an older brother who's a, a hot rod enthusiast and a muscle car guy, so he was always into cool bikes and, and cool things, and so anything he had, I always wanted myself because he was older than me. So uh, anyway, the word Schwinn, people hear it now, and most people that are uh, my age or older think of quality American-made bikes, better quality, better price, value, um, everything. Schwinn is not ever by any means considered a, a lightweight ex exotic race bike or anything like that. They're typically referred to as tanks. They're heavy bikes. They last. Uh, they take a beating. Typically been used and beat up. People have earned money with pay, you know, paper routes and different things, uh, doing stuff with their bikes. And a lot of kids had paper routes and wanted to save for a bike. So they would get a paper route and, and do their thing, collect their money and go buy a Schwinn and then uh, outfit it to do so with a, uh, hooks to hang the bags from and baskets and whatnot. So a lot of people hear Schwinn and they just think of uh, Americana, history, heritage, you know, good quality. Unfortunately, that name doesn't mean all of that now. Uh, I am by no means an authority on Schwinn history or dates or timeline. I just kind of know what I know and what I've heard. And sometimes uh, you hear things and you just bankroll them in your brain as fact. And, and that's really kind of where it sits. And you just quote it later on only to find out you're actually mistaken. So I've been corrected along the ways many times by people. But for the most part, what I've gathered is that true American-made Chicago, Illinois-produced Schwinn's were going strong and 
made right there until 1982. And then in 83, it was sort of a transition year. I understand that talks were that Schwinn was going to be taken over to Taiwan. So they were in the process of, of selling off the company or, or transitioning the company probably for production costs and uh, things like that. Uh, so in the year of 83 or 84, I'm not sure which, I've heard conflicting stories. The frames, uh, a lot of the pieces and parts were made by Schwinn. Um, they, they typically would build a lot of stuff and have it laying around, and then they would produce things when the need came. So it's not uncommon to find a Schwinn frame that didn't get actually built into a whole bicycle for nearly a year. So in those last years or year, a lot of them were built, I understand, by the Murray Bicycle Company, I believe in Kentucky. And so those are not accepted by the true Schwinn fanatics and aficionados as genuine Schwinn's, but in fact they are made with a lot of, you know, actual Schwinn components. After that, it was all in Taiwan, and they were still a pretty decent bike, but just not what they once were. From that point on, it just went to, you know, cheaper production costs and, and things like that, and the bikes got uh, less expensive to produce, less less quality, and they just sort of lost their personality in the opinion of most. Not to say they're horrible bikes, not to say that they're not good bikes, you know, they're still by a lot of standards a decent bike, but you walk into Walmart and purchase a, a Schwinn for, you know, uh, $200, you're not getting what a Schwinn once was for a lot less money, which is really crazy. It's just things have changed so much in my lifetime. Yeah, that's basically it, in my opinion. The, the best Schwinns were the early ones. They're great bikes, great quality bikes, and for the money, they were just amazing. Like It just blows my mind that they could produce bikes with the steel tubing, the beautiful, excellent chrome quality that they had, all the cool little details and everything, and a whole bike would be like 75 bucks, and it just blows my mind that that could happen because now you can't get one single component made in the USA that's good quality for that money. So there's a there's a definite line in the sand talking to Schwinn fans, and that line in the sand is when production was transported. So when aficionados talk about Schwinns, they're talking about Chicago Schwinns. Definitely. Throughout the years, they had the pre-war Schwinns, and, and when you get into Schwinn guys, there's a bunch of guys that are really, really into pre-war stuff. That's really all they care about or all they focus on. They're really into the real nitty-gritty details of everything. Then you have, like, phantom people who just love the Black Phantom, which is arguably one of the most expensive and fancy and highly decorated Schwinn's ever made. You have the people that like Stingrays. They just love the, the Stingray era. Most of those guys, almost all Schwinn people, it's really interesting the diversity of the crowd that, that likes the bikes and like I said, if you like Schwinn's, the Chicago Schwinn's, you definitely have an appreciation or admiration of all of those bikes, but there's people that get really into the racing bikes like the Paramounts and stuff like that, and there's, you know, like I said, your Stingray people, your Phantom people, your pre-war guys. I know that the company was sort of losing steam in the early 60s, and I believe it was Frank Schwinn that came in and took one of their small little frames, and he added a what effectively became a banana seat 
I don't really know how, but they had a bunch of these seats that they referred to as solo polos laying around, supposedly. And they were made by a, an independent supplier called Persons. And they were like a banana seat, but they were really flat. I mean, they really basically looked like a two-by-four with a little bit of a curve on the bottom. And he took this regular Schwinn model, I guess, put that flat, long seat on it, and put some tall, they called them high-rise handlebars or eight hangers or whatever, and he kind of threw that together and rode it around the warehouse, and everybody was looking at him like he was crazy. And uh, he showed it off in a few meetings, got the opinions of a few of the big volume dealers across the country, and it kind of just became a thing. And, of course, California is on the forefront of a lot of things custom and cool, and I guess it really blew up out there and uh, just really tied in with the hot rod scene and, and the, you know, the big daddy Ed Roth drag craze and all that. All that stuff kind of goes hand in hand, the Bond Dutch pinstriping and all that hot rod, early 60s California custom bicycles, motorcycles, cars, it all sort of ties in together. So that kind of breathed new life into a kind of stagnant company because after the war, the materials were more readily available. They pumped out a ton of bikes. They got kind of fancy with them. They had a lot of chrome and a lot of really cool gadgets that they didn't necessarily need for function. And uh, they were really embellished and, and kind of crazy. And that was really cool, and that kind of carried them for a while. And then it got sort of boring. And they went into these bikes called middleweights, which are a lighter-duty version with smaller tires and uh, lighter weight. And they, you know, everything over the years got less and less overkill on the quality. The quality stayed amazing until the early 80s, but the quality, you know, was probably way overkill in the earlier days, and then it started to kind of fall off. And uh, the style that uh, the frame, the style of welding and forging that the frames were constructed of was also unique to Schwinn, and their design, I believe they called it electroforging. And if you look at one, it's where they press the tubes together. It's got a real smooth, flowing transition from one piece to another. And even when Schwinn went to the other countries of manufacture, that process was probably far too expensive and difficult to duplicate. So they just went to the standard style that most other companies did, and it just lost something there. So if you look at an early Schwinn, the early pre-war bikes were kind of crude, but they were really cool and ahead of their time. But if you look at some of the, the post-war bikes and some of that other stuff, they were just so refined and so beautiful, and their works of art. And uh, I think that's what gets so many people excited about it. It's just the quality and, and beauty of them. Me, for, for sure, I would much rather have a rusty, beat-up 50-year-old Schwinn than I would anything you could give me in a brand-new modern-day bike shop. There's just nothing like them. So I'm going to have a confession now. When I first started flipping bikes, I hated Schwinn's. <laughs> and Why is the, re the reason is, as a bike flipper, you're like getting frustrated because you've got a 26 by 1 and 3 eighths tire, but it's not <laughs> yeah. the right size 28 by 1 and 3 eighths inch tire because you're now working on a Schwinn. Right. And at first, that really ticked me off, and all of the little parts that would sh say Schwinn approved, Schwinn approved. And when I looked at the history of Schwinn, 
and found out that the reason they did that is because some of the stuff that was made in America, and as you can see, when you get some of these old bikes, some made in America bikes were crap. Yeah. And they they basically elevated the standard of American manufacturing. There were the reason that they made a different tire size was supposedly because America was cranking out some really, really crappy bike tires that were no good, and they didn't want their company to be associated with anything that was less than quality. Right. So I eventually came around to it. Every single person that does any time in the in the Schwinn lifestyle learns that hard lesson where they buy a bike and it needs tires and they run to their local bike shop and, oh, 26 by one and three quarter, that's the same as 1.75, right? Wrong. Uh, you buy the tires, you bring them home, they will not fit on that rim. Uh, that's the most common Schwinn thing, lesson that people have to learn. So I'm obviously a member of many, many Schwinn forums and pages on Facebook and other avenues of social media and whatnot, and it's funny sitting back when you've been doing it forever and thinking about how crazy you went when you were trying to stretch those tires over the rims and you kept reading the size and knowing you were right and you ripped the bead on the tire because you lost your mind. And then here comes a brand new person and they say, hey, thanks for joining, letting me join your club. I appreciate it. Uh, I have a question. I just bought a Schwinn and the tires that I bought at my local bike shop, the guy swears they'll fit, but they won't. What's going on? And it's like all these old-timers, which has nothing to do with age, just people who have been in the, the Schwinn game for a minute, just sit back and go, uh, you want to take this one? Because I've said this thing like a thousand times. So it's just kind of funny. But, um, yeah, when you get your hands on a Schwinn, you go to the Schwinn out of a backyard. I live in Tucson, Arizona. It's a dry, 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 dusty desert climate. So we don't deal with rust here, but everything is rotten from the sun. Uh, so you find an old bike in the backyard, and uh, the sun has baked all the grease out of the bangs if it's been sitting for any length of time. And, you know, you'll see some surface rust, but it's very unusual to see something that is truly genuinely rusty and can't be brought back. But um, you, you grab one of these bikes, you take it apart, and the bangs are brown and orange with rust, and they squeak when you try to roll them or rotate them or turn the fork or whatever. But you take those things apart, you clean them up as best you can, you wire brush things if necessary, most of the time you soak them or whatever. You put fresh grease on them, and those bearings, the ball bearings, the cages for the bearings, the races, everything is so amazingly built and crafted. 50, 60-year-old things, you can just run them and be golden. You know, I, I used to be, when you first kind of get into the bike thing, not everybody but me and most people that have met, you take things off and discard them and go buy brand new ones at your local bike shop because new is always better than an old rusty one, right? No, not at all. You buy a brand new bearing made in whatever country makes them and uh, put a few miles on it with some good quality grease and the balls start to literally crumble and fall apart or they get flat spots in them. And you're hard pressed to find an old Schwinn bearing that's bad or shot. I mean, they'll be rusty, but you can typically revive them with some grease and some some elbow grease and some actual grease, and they'll come right back. And, you know, you hold the, the bearing races in your hand for the fork cones or the cups for the bearings or um, the cranks or the goosenecks, you know, the forged goosenecks and all those parts. You just hold those pieces in your hand, and they're so heavy. They're ridiculously overbuilt. 
They're so heavy. The quality is amazing. And, uh, you know, eight times out of ten, you can revive the chrome on one unless it's just really, really been soaking in water or sitting in a bad spot where it got a lot of moisture. Typically, uh, an SOS pad, some liquid detergent, and, uh, you know, worn-out fingertips, and you can make all that chrome come back. And, you know, you buy a, a, a pretty decent bike at a bicycle front nowadays, leave it out on your back porch, not in the direct weather, but out on the back porch where the, the different elements and air temperatures can get it. And one good season out on the back porch, undercover, but exposed to the elements, that thing will be frozen and locked up and completely needing to be re- rebuilt or, or serviced or parts replaced or whatever. And you can drag them all swim out of the backyard and squirt some grease and oil on it and, you know, tires. I'm exaggerating here, of course, but you can very minimally get one of those things going and it just amazes me. And I have dropped so many bikes. I, I do flip bikes. I do buy bikes. I sell bikes. I trade bikes. I do it to feed my addiction and, uh, to try and offset and take the edge off the costs that I put into these things. And, uh, you know, you can get a bike going and uh, get something roadworthy very easily. You know, of course, tires and tubes and stuff make the price go up and things like that. But if you have a good supply and a good pool of parts to to choose from, you can whip a few things out, swap them out, and get it going again. And that's just something I've never been able to duplicate with any other brand. Because if you're into bikes enough, other things will come your way. And when you're kind of a Schwinn snob, you turn your nose up at those other things. But once in a while, something comes your way free. Somebody just says, oh, you want this old bike? And you really don't, but you take it just because it looks kind of cool or you think you can sell it. And every time I tear one apart and something goes wrong, I just shake my head and laugh because I knew better than to mess with it. And I'm not saying that everything else out there is junk. I'm just saying I have been spoiled and I love my Schwinn's. You know, it's just, it's crazy. Kind of like how people with cars are Ford or Chevy, you know, or or other brands. But it's like once, you know, Red Sox versus Yankees, it's like for whatever reason you get into it, you really do have to be all in with spare parts for Schwinn's. You have to be Mm -hmm. like dedicated to be a Schwinn person or dedicated to be a non-Schwinn person because there really is It's almost like a whole different universe of little parts and little pieces and the amount of compatibility is incredible within the Schwinn universe in terms right. of the parts and the quality and the and the builds. But to to start mixing that with the other universe, it's kind of like matter and antimatter. Yep. <laughs> as much as it's you can. Yeah. Yeah, you can um, take a, a seat post clamp from a mid seventies lightweight racing bike, like say a varsity. And you can put that same seat post clamp onto a, you know, late 40s post-war Schwinn uh, balloon tire bike, and they interchange. The seat post size is a weird size also on Schwinn. It's 13 sixteenths. And they basically all are from, from you know, the 40s or probably earlier all the way up into the early 80s. It's 13 sixteenths. And, 
you know, if it's a Saturday afternoon and you need a seat place for a swing, you're not going to walk into a bike shop most of the time and buy one off the shelf. They have their little peculiarities, and that is where hoarding comes in handy because, like I said, you know, I, I see those um, lightweight bikes which don't interest me in the least because I'm I'm not a super crazy cyclist. I just like to buzz around and chase my kids around the bikes and have fun. But I do buy those bikes because they're a wealth of good parts, like all the bearings, the pedals, the cranks, the goosenecks, the hardware. You know, even Schwinn hardware is unique. A lot of it's just regular American-sized hardware that you can go purchase anywhere, but the head styles of the screws are different, and the washer uh, for, like, certain things like the gooseneck pinch bolt uh, is a small outside diameter. So if you go buy a a hardware store washer, it's not going to look right or, you know, whatever, and stand out. So, yes, most definitely within the Schwinn world, tons and tons of interchangeability for decades. But as soon as you step out of that box... It's all different. And that's part of why there's such a hard line defined. It's not a snobbery. It's a very practical sense of why people are like, that new Schwinn's not really a Schwinn. Right. You know, technically it's a Schwinn, but it's from the other universe. It's from the, right. the other side of the galaxy. The new parts, people people who don't know, people who casually dabble in bikes they talk to me and you can see them you can say schwinn's a good one right you know and with that look on their heads and you know that they're thinking the lineage of schwinn's and you're like saying it's it's a very different kingdom it's it's like the other thing was totally separate i can't i can't even come up with a comparison of how separate it is from what you buy today So a comparison did come to me during a ride today, and I was kind of thinking, it's kind of like the difference between Donald Sutherland and Kiefer Sutherland. There you go. With the Schwinn, other than it's got two wheels and it might be decent to ride around on for a little bit, it's a cut above some other names, for sure. Like, there is still, I mean, the guys who did buy the company name uh, do love the old company as well, but they've taken it in a different direction you know they come out with the the repop of pickers uh the the crate bikes and they do love that old lineage but there is a definite separation between the two most definitely most definitely when you talk about schwinn the other reason that i did not like them at first was that they were a little bit out of our price range back yep. when I was a kid. There were bike shops and then there were Schwinn dealers. And the right. Schwinn dealership was like when you walk into a car dealership. They, you don't walk into a Ford dealership and they don't have Dodges and Chevys and they might in the used spectrum, but they, there was just Schwinns everywhere and they would be like what kind of schwinn did you want (laughs) that would be that would be it you know that would be your choice and they'd be like oh and you look at the price tags at least back in my day when they were kind of near the end of what they were doing their prices were way higher than a lot of the other even american-made bikes sure and but their quality was also a lot higher so you would get something that was an heirloom quality (laughs) bicycle but you were going to pay through the nose and to convince your parents 
who were just kind of uncertain as to what they were, what you were going to do with this bike at that point. Usually, you'd end up going to the department store and getting a huffy or or getting、yep. something that where the quality, granted, was a lot lower and still a decent bike, still had tons of fun on them, but it was、yeah. definitely a status symbol to to have that. And as that model changed, and the Schwinn dealerships, which you don't see anywhere, you can kind of compare it to how some of the local bike shops have been taken over by Trek. It really is everything was house brand, and there was,、yeah. you know, it was a franchise. What stories have you heard about that stuff? Well, and you know what else is interesting to add to that, real quick, is they had every aspect of the sport covered. So if you wanted to go riding with your wife, they had a tandem. If you wanted to,、uh, if you had an elderly mom or dad that needed to ride, but the balance wasn't the greatest, they had a trike that they could ride around on, and even you know had really creative and really cutting edge advertising back in the day with really cool scenes and, and settings of Disneyland in the background and、uh, an older person pulling up to like a market and they were loading their trike with、uh, fresh fruit or whatever. And they had really, really neat, innovative ads. They had a, a Christmas mini Christmas ad. So one of the Christmas ads that stands out is there's a, a Christmas tree at the bottom of the stairs, and there's basically a different swim for every member of the family, from an exercise bike to a you know a lightweight race bike to a kid stingray to a you know a tandem or whatever. Just really, really cool.、Um, but they offered you know Schwinn approved tools and.、Uh, Clothing and gear and gloves and shoes and water bottles and everything that they made, you know, they really, really made it a point to set their product apart from everybody else. And you could call it the Lexus experience for for modern day times. Harley Davidson. I work for Harley Davidson. I'm in my 20th year、uh, at Harley, and Harley is very, very strict. They're very premium. Whether you love them, like them or not, it doesn't matter. They are a standalone company. That has done their own thing, and they've never allowed dealers to pair in other brands with them. They want them to be a Harley dealer only, and with that name and that motorcycle, they offer everything to take care of it—from genuine service to genuine clothing to products and parts—and everything is Harley branded to the point where people just laugh. You know, oh, I bet you have Harley Davidson toilet paper at your house. Well, they do make it. <laughs> you know, so. It was an excellent brand, excellent quality. Like you said, heirloom, but you're going to pay for it. But if you went into that front door of that store, they had everything that you needed when you rolled out of there on your bike. You had all your needs covered. Not to say that there weren't other companies making products that were, you know, usable with your Schwinn, of course, or whatever. But in other words, they were kind of like a one-stop shop. You could get everything, and.、Uh, All the tools the mechanics used, and all the parts, every little thing was went approved, went approved, and you know it's kind of crazy, but like they put their name on everything from bearing cages on the you know the fork bearings to the the fork cone nuts. Not certainly not every single thing, but it's just crazy how proud they were of their brand and and how they offered the most awesome quality things. And when they did go out and Venture into areas that they didn't manufacture. They would contract with big companies that were well known in the business, like they used、uh, ACS hubs, the aluminum hubs, in some of their late '70s and '80s bikes, and in the cruiser lines and、uh, the Spitfires and 
some of the kids' bikes, like the Scramblers and stuff, had these high-flange hubs. They were made by a company called uh, ACS, which was a well-known, well-established company. Um, a lot of the pedals on Schwinn's were made by Union. Union was a German company known for, you know, excellent quality. They had their own brand and their own line, but then they also contracted for Schwinn, with Schwinn, and made stuff for them. So Ashtabula, some people call it Ashtabula, some people call it Ashtabula. It is a city in Ohio, from what I gather, and it's like a forgery. And Schwinn got with them. And they made all Schwinn's blade forks for their for their bikes, which were a unique solid metal fork. Um, a lot of the bicycle companies were using like hollow tubing that was flat, like a blade or round style in the later years. But Schwinn went with a solid forged fork on a lot of their bikes, and then the cranks on the bicycles were made also by that company. So their cranks were really really stout and rigid. Again, with that comes weight. So Schwinn's were never uh, winning all the races at the racetrack, but they were really excellent quality, and they were really, really designed to hang in there and take a beating when kids put them to the test, and they did. That's another thing. You know, you find bikes, and all these years later, and things, you know, certainly things are bent and broken and messed up with them because they've had a hard life, but by and large, when you find a Schwinn, most of the pieces are in pretty good shape and reusable, whereas when you find another old bike, if it's had a hard life, you know, you know it. You have to swap out half the bike parts to get it whole again. So that's why you have to do two or three to make one. Whereas with the Schwinn, you typically just, you know, put a fresh seat on it because the seats, are, well, at least in the part of the country I'm in, the seats are rotten from the sun and the, the grips and chains are frozen or whatnot. But basically, you know, with some good disassembly, cleaning, and reassembly, you can reuse most of the parts on the bike and that's what I love about them they're just they're just awesome they're bulletproof when Schwinn started going down when they started losing the market share in the United States. I've heard rumors that there was a single bill that was introduced that changed some type of tariff structure or import-export structure that basically killed the American bicycle market. But I've been unable to find anywhere else. I, I read it once briefly and I was like, oh, I got to go back to that. And I've not been able to find it since. But there was the other issue, which is a little bit more recorded is that some guys out west started bombing down hills on old Schwinn's and other bikes with coaster brakes and the repackers who started mountain biking. And they supposedly approached the Schwinn company and said, hey, mountain bikes are going to be a thing. And this was after the muscle bikes, after BMX yep. had started. And after the 10-speed boom, which Schwinn survived all of those and got into all of those, and they kind of came up and said, hey, mountain biking is going to be the next big thing. And, and Schwinn was like, mm, yeah, maybe. We'll, we'll pass. Yes. Yep. <laughs> that was, and that was uh, definitely uh, a blockbuster moment for them, like when Blockbuster sure. had the opportunity to buy Netflix. 
I think it was one of those things where, like, the Stingray craze, you know, was ending and over, and kids were getting into BMX bikes, and they had these really cool diamond frames and, you know, really beefy components and whatnot. And you look at a Scrambler, Schwinn's early offerings into the BMX line were basically a Stingray uh, that's the same frame design, the cantilever design that's been around since, like, you know, the late 30s, early 40s. And uh, kids were like, yeah, that's that looks just like my dad's beach cruiser. Or, you know, that looks like uh, whatever. I want, like, a really cool bike with uh, plastic wheels, like Skyway Tough wheels. And I don't want those big, heavy spoke wheels that Schwinn has. So Schwinn was like, okay. So then they, they came out with a second variety of the Scrambler that had the, the more common diamond frame that you see in BMX bikes. And very cool, and they have a cool following. But I think Schwinn was just kind of chasing. They had... I wouldn't say they rested on their laurels, but maybe they kind of did, and they sort of rode that wave. And like you said, they outlasted all those eras of bicycling and, you know, remained pretty relevant in all those years, including the bicycle uh, uh, racing days, you know, with the Paramount. That was a special bike. I don't know anything about them, but it was a special bike made by, by Schwinn, and it was very exotic. It was made in its own different factory. They were all hand-welded from what I understand, and, they were very, very special and very unique and very, very hands-on built by, by people rather than machines. And Schwinn uh, was just kind of trying to sell off a lot of their old design stuff, and they had tons and tons of frames produced, so they were pumping out all different kinds of things. And, yeah, these battle bikes were, were coming on, and it was guys taking knobby tires and uh, different handlebars and, you know, uh, like you said, primarily coaster brakes, but sometimes they were gearing them and, and running cantilever brakes and different things like that. And Schwinn, Schwinn even kind of sat back and, and watched it, and I think they observed and maybe even considered getting involved. But then it was like, nah, that's not really our thing. That's not what we're going to do. And so, you know, Schwinn was like, yeah, but we kind of still want to get in on that money. So they actually even came out with a bike called the Clunker 5. It was a five-speed, uh, late 70s, early 80s, I think. Uh, they had one called a Spitfire. And then they called it a cruiser. And then for a very moment, brief moment, they called one a clunker. Well, the name clunker was uh, being used for those bikes you were describing, the downhill racer bike. And uh, I think they had one called a California Special or California something. My Schwinn purist friends would choke me for not knowing these names. But that's uh, that involved in lawsuits for using the name clunker and using, you know, California in their name. So it was just kind of like, yeah. Yeah, maybe that's not a thing. Maybe we should just let it go. And they, they did come out with a bike called the Sidewinder, which is an awesome bike that I love, but it's got no suspension. They had a single speed, a 5, and a 10 speed. It was a really cool bike. It was kind of like early mountain bike style. It had uh, mountain bike style things like knobby tires and uh, foam grips, and most of them had, or a lot of them had like a Brooks uh, vinyl saddle on them. And, and, you know, blue anodized brakes and blue anodized uh, Ukai rims on them. They were really cool, but they just weren't really getting it. They kind of missed it, I think. And the bikes did really well for a while, but then not really. And then Schwinn had, like, a racing line called King Stings. Uh, Stings were uh, a 20-inch version race bike, and then they had a King Sting, which was a 26-inch version. And, again, a very unique frame, chromoly, uh, built-in a special location, more hand-built, hand-welded frames and whatnot. They had a really nice 
gathering of components on them, like diacomp brakes and the Ukiah rims and a lot of stuff. And to those, to this day, a lot of those bikes are the very, very most collectible Schwinn's out there. The Paramounts, the Black Phantoms, and then the Kingstings probably are all ranking right up in there with with the newer stuff. Of course, there's early pre-war stuff that guys go insane over, but um, the Kingsting stuff is really, really cool. But again, no suspension. And the mountain bike craze was coming on, and they were starting to do uh, the brakes that were had the brackets mounted to the forks. They call them cantilever brakes. That was a real popular thing. And Schwinn, you know, they came out with the the Sidewinder, and then there was another bike called like a Sierra. And they were, you know, they were half-hearted, in my opinion. Again, I'm no expert. I'm no authority. And I'm definitely when, not when did the like homegrowns, when homegrown was like the 90s, data. if I'm not mistaken. The Sierra came out in the 80s, and they had a, uh, a Sierra, a couple of different ones. But in my opinion, they were like a half-hearted attempt to sort of sort of dabble in that market. It just really wasn't their thing. They didn't chase it by any means. And then the whole yeah, it was, it was after the boat. Yeah. After the boat had already sailed, and they had, oh yeah yeah yeah, it, and then the it was such a big company. It was like one one part of the company was like, yeah, we're not interested, but we'll let that other, we'll let the uh, the right hand not know what the left hand's doing. We'll let the left hand work on that, but the right hand's going to do this. And it wasn't yeah. the whole company didn't get behind it like it had on previous things. Oh yeah, exactly. I mean, in the beginning or the earlier years, they focused really primarily on a very small handful of items and they just punched them out and they blew them out of the park. I mean, they just did it, you know, and uh, they added new things here and there, but they stayed true to the basic handful of frame styles they had ever made. And they just did what worked and repeated over and over and over again. And this other market was changing and evolving and it involved a lot of, you know, custom touches again, going out and doing things and they were just tweaking their bikes at home and, uh, you know, all these other companies were kind of coming on. Once again, California on the forefront of everything. Uh, Cook Brothers and Gary Littlejohn and all these other really crazy, exotic, basic and simple, but they had really cool, neat stuff. And, uh, you know, started off by little mom and pop operations uh, out of homes or, or little garages, and then it blew up from there. And that stuff to this day is just, I mean, that blows my mind. You go on eBay and snoop around for Cooks Brothers parts, and the people that are into those are absolute diehard people that are into that, and they would rather not eat dinner for a month (laughs) just so they could have that seat post clamp that's correct, that's the right air, the right fade. It's anodized gold, but it's faded just right, and it's going to match my faded rims. So I'll pay uh, $800 for that seat post clamp. And again, I'm not an expert on that, but I've got a buddy who's into that. And he, he just screenshots pictures and sends them to me, and I just sit there and go, what? And I'm, I am I work for Harley-Davidson. I'm not numb completely to pricing, and uh, things still shock me. But for the most part, you know, I, I've been in retail for a long time, but I kind of have a, an idea of what things go for. And then he sends me these pictures, and I'm like, what? You know and he'll tell me, and he's in the he's in the scene, so he's not some noob that's just trying to get in and paying whatever they're. You know, he considers himself pretty thrifty and pretty, uh, pretty, uh, you know, up on things. And he'll tell me once in a while, not bragging, but just like, yeah, check it out, I bought this for this price. And he's so thrilled that he stole it for that price. And I'm just like, 
wow. Like, I, I just can't even believe that that kind of money is put into a bicycle, you know. And, and he's, you know, he, he's very, very into it. He's got a lot of cool stuff, but he really goes out and digs to find his stuff. He's not just some super rich dude that lays out bucks real easily. He, he digs hard to find things, but the stuff he comes up with, and he's thrilled to have bought it for the price he did, it's, it's just a whole other world for me. It blows my mind. It's the way people felt when they first saw the balloon tire bikes from oh, yeah. the first era just skyrocket. And they've gone down in price since then sure. as each generation goes through. But, yeah, that, that was a huge part of it. The Pee anyway, Herman movie so, came out and just blew up the scene and revived the, the balloon tire thing back in the 80s. And it rode that way for a while. And Flynn even reproduced Phantoms in the 90s, late 90s. And they came out with a whole reproduction line of crates. And they were really, really great. And they focus tons of money and tooling and energy into making really accurate replicas, but that ultimately were just too expensive to produce. All right. So if people would like to see some of your bikes, where could they go? My only outlet for showing anything is Instagram, and my name on Instagram is D, as in Danny, S, as in Schwinn, E, as in Exchange. I don't use the word Schwinn because it would be illegal to do so, but it's D, S, E, underscore Tucson, because I live in Tucson, Arizona, and Tucson is T-U-C-S-O-N, and uh, I am a family man. I have two young boys at home. I spend a lot of time with them, of course, but I do sneak out to my little bike room and try and pump out some builds here and there. I buy and sell and, and trade a lot of stuff, and it's 100% my passion. It's not by any means a business or anything I can make money on because I'm in so deep. I sell something for $10, and I turn around and spend 80 So <laughs> it's just something fun to do, and it's 100% driven by the amazing quality of these bikes. Well, thanks for sharing. And yeah, hopefully thanks for talk to, you soon. to you. All right, I yeah. appreciate the opportunity. Maybe, maybe when I get out there to visit my daughter at some point for college, when this whole pandemic thing winds down, hopefully uh, we can go uh, take a ride around the block or something. I've got a bike here with your name on it. Awesome. And let me know if you ever see an extra, extra large frame, because I guess <laughs> those are the, the king frames is what I would need. Yeah, I had one of those recently, and uh, a buddy of mine talked me out of it. I've had them before, and uh, it was a weak moment, and I'm working on my other addiction, which is air-cooled Volkswagens, and uh, trying to pull together extra money to buy Volkswagen parts, so he caught me in a weak moment, and uh, I regretted selling it immediately, because that king frame is pretty awesome, and they almost never come up. Yeah, they don't. All right. Hey, it was good to talk to you, and take care. You too. Thank you very much. Now it's time for gratitude and thanks at the mid-roll for following on Podbeam. Thank you to Ben Thomas and Zay Fieldner, Zay Forwardner, Zay Forwardner. I hope one of those was pronounced right. Thank you for the encouragement. Nels Dewey, 
And then I actually know a knight in England, but it's Sam Knight from the Halfway Home podcast, where he bikes halfway someplace and a friend bikes halfway someplace. It's an interesting podcast. And then they share stories. Then also, thank you to uh, Troy Harding from Indiana, who wanted to hear another ghost bike story. And there you go. It's one came up in the episode. So thank you for the encouragement and suggestion. One of the easiest ways to help out the show is to share information about the show. No matter where you listen to podcasts, whether it's YouTube or Audible or Spotify or Podbean, any place that you listen and follow and perhaps leave a positive review is greatly appreciated and extremely helpful. Even if it's not the main place you listen to it, like YouTube, for example, like you go on YouTube, but you might listen to podcasts somewhere else. Give us a follow on YouTube and it really does help to elevate us in searches and stuff like that. Want to give a shout out to Bob Behind Bars for catching up to episode 58. And thank you, whoever you are right now for just listening. A big thank you to Jay Bailey for being a Patreon. For as little as a dollar a month, you could help support the show by being a Patreon. Just go to patreon.com and search up Bike Karma. You can do any amount and stop anytime you want. Thank you for those of you supporting with the cost of the show. The mid-roll thank yous would not be complete without thanking Fred Thomas at The Frame and Wheel. Fred is a longtime supporter of the show and his business, The Frame and Wheel, helps you to get rid of your used bicycles, parts, and accessories without having to do any of the work yourself. So if you've got a used bicycle, some parts you aren't using, or some accessories that are in great condition but you just don't use, why not get some more time, space, and cash by contacting Fred Thomas at The Frame and Wheel? I sell bikes online all the time and I even have my own swap meet that I run. But there's some times where I just look at some parts and I know it's going to be a pain to sell them. So just last month I packed a bunch up into a box and sent them off to Fred at the frame and wheel. He quickly sent me back an itemized inventory and then it was fun just watching that stuff get posted on eBay. The pictures were great. I didn't have to worry or think about the fees or what price to set things at. And even better, I didn't have to deal with weird people asking questions such as, will this work with this bike? Or can I return this to you four months later after I've tried to use it and found out I didn't want to? Fred dealt with all that. And yes, of course, it's a business, so Fred does take a cut. But at the end of the day, when I looked at how much it costs to ship, how much it costs to list on eBay and other places, and how Fred took a fair price, all things considered, I was happy to get a check that I deposited over my phone. So if you've got some parts, bikes, or accessories laying around, and every time you see them, you kind of have a voice in your head that says, "Ah, when are you going to sell them? The realistic answer to that is probably you're you're never going to do it, or you probably would have done it already. So why not take advantage of Fred at the frame and wheel? He's got lots of different plans, and he's really good at what he does. He's also a great person to buy stuff from as he vets the stuff pretty well. He's on all the different social media, so why not check him out? And that wraps up the mid-roll thank yous. Now back to the show. Hi, my name is David Matthews. I'm from Bike Friendly Atlanta. I'm here to remind you to do your ABC Quick Check. 
our mission at Bikes from the Atlanta is to raise awareness for safer streets for all to use by placing ghost bikes around the country, southeast, and trying to raise awareness for people to treat each other safer while on the road using automobiles, cars, or bicycles. To date, I've placed over 85 ghost bikes around the southeast and anywhere from Santa Ana, California to Orlando, Florida, and anywhere in between. These people were simply out for a bike ride, possibly going to work, possibly going to see friends and neighbors, and tragically, they were taken from us, and these ghost bikes commemorate them and try to raise awareness on a daily basis that we all can use our roads safer and be a lot nicer towards each other. And today, I'm here to remind you to do your ABC Quick Check every time you ride. Not doing it can cost you dearly. A, always check your airs and your tires. A lack of air also causes many pinch flats. The B is for your brakes. Sometimes squeezy brakes are also a sign that your brakes are not operating properly. So check those before every ride. C is for the chain and the gearing. Make sure your chain and your gears are also aligned. This will help you have a better ride overall. Also remember to check your quick release or your through hubs. The nuts that hold those on or the quick releases need to be safe and secured very tightly. Those coming off at any speed can be a tragic crash for you and anybody around you. So make sure you check those. And then lastly, the overall quick check. Make sure you check over everything on your bike from front to back, top to bottom. And just remember, checking over your bike every time you go out to ride, and sometimes when you come in from a ride, can save you lots of heartache and also a possible bad crash. Make sure you check your bike before and after every ride, and it doesn't take a lot of time. And once again, during this holiday season that we're encroaching upon, I want to remind you that if you have any questions about Bike Friendly Atlanta, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram. Look up Bike Friendly ATL. We do service anywhere across the United States trying to help our fallen friends and their families during their time of trials and tribulations down this long, hard road. They deserve better. We all deserve better and safer streets for everybody to use. Uh, no matter how you choose to use them, we can all get along a lot better on our roads than what we've been doing in the past. If you have any questions, please contact me through Bike Friendly ATL on any social media. I hope everybody has a happy holiday season, and take care, and God bless. You may remember this ABC Quick Check from Dave Matthews from Bike Friendly Atlanta in a previous episode. What I wasn't able to include at the time was the stories behind some of what he does down there. So with gratitude for his patience, I present to you the extended stories from David Matthews from Bike Friendly Atlanta. My name is David Matthews. I am from Decatur, Georgia. Our mission at Bikes in the Atlanta is to raise awareness for safer streets for all to use by placing ghost bikes and trying to raise awareness for people to treat each other safer while on the road using automobiles, cars, or bicycles. 
I don't know if you've probably been following me a little bit. I've got another Instagram account called DMTA Tennis, which is basically me. I teach tennis for a living. I've been trying to re-energize my playing career. At one time, I was top two or three in the country in my age divisions. I've represented the United States a couple of times, and cycling was a big part of my training. So I'm trying to rejuvenate that career and, you know, getting your knees and your legs and everything going again is a slow, steady process. And so I've been hitting a little bit. I've got I've actually gotten my rackets out. Uh, I got new rackets from Wilson, and I've got a bicycle. Actually, the, the emblem of Bike Friendly Atlanta is the stencil on my racket. And so everywhere I go, I'm going to be wearing optic yellow, which is what I'm known for now, you know, through wearing optic yellow on my cycling kit, which is what the bike friendly kit looks like. I've basically taken that silhouette and putting it on my racket, and I'm going to be wearing optic yellow when I go hit the court. So, uh, you know, it's going to be a long process. I knew this, uh, gosh, January 31st will be 10 years ago when I got hit head on by a car and uh, started building my first ghost bike a year later. It's been a mission of mine, and I just got to a point where my wife said to me, you know, you draw a lot of attention on a bike because you're a big guy, but you also draw a lot of attention on a tennis court because you've got a monster serve. And I said, you have a point. You know, it's I can cross over. You know, it's almost like a, an actor that goes into singing or vice versa. You go into different genres so that you can draw more, more of a crowd. And for me... It's not about me. That's got everything to do with these. I'm about to start crying. It's got everything to do with these families that, you know, they're going to go through this Christmas season and they're missing a loved one. And to, to me, that's just, it's just not acceptable. So that's, you know, my holiday season is, is you know, reaching out to these families and just telling them that, you know, somebody else does care. But, uh, a lot of them have good families, you know, structure around them, and that's a good thing. But uh, still, these ghost bikes have given them, you know, hope that there's some humanity outside of their little, you know, their little domain, their little family unit that somebody else does really care. And that's important to me, you know, to not only to me but to them because they know that we are kind of unified by this horrific thing, but yet there's a lot of people that feel the same way. So hopefully – um, one day these voices are going to get heard, you know, up in Washington and in our state capitals. And, uh, you know, I hope it's sooner than later. You know, I saw I posted something the other day that I said, uh, you know, I hope I get to see it. You know, I don't know if it will happen, but I hope, you know, it's all I can do is hope. You do a lot of good work. And have your ears been burning at all? Because you remember you called me a while back. And oh, I was yeah. in the middle of I was in the middle of a ride, and I remember I stopped, I pulled over, and I know exactly where I was sitting. I was sitting right at the golf course, and I remember talking to you, and I couldn't remember if I recorded that conversation or I didn't record that conversation. So honestly, I have been for the last however long it's been since then. I've been looking for to see if I could find that recording, if there was a recording, and I have not been able to find it. So I figured we must not have recorded that right. day yeah. and you told me you told me a whole bunch of stuff and i remember talking to you and i'm like oh jesus did i did i did i, did I record or did i record i, I gotta i gotta yeah. get this guy on the show i gotta get this guy he's doing a lot of good work so let me ask you this you got hit and then you went to a ghost bike what was the transition of going from 
you yourself being hit and not killed oh, to put the oh, first ghost bike out there. I had somebody, I think it was my, um, I have a, my doubles partner. We played, there's a lot of tournaments here around Atlanta, but we played for about seven, eight, nine years. He's an attorney and by trade, but my idea with going through life is if you don't have to use an attorney, you did damn good because that means you stay out of a lot of damn trouble. <laughs> and, uh, one day I just got hit and spent about five hours in surgery. My wife gets a call, you know, I'm wearing a road ID and she gets a call and they leave a voicemail and you know, they both go down. My wife and my two daughters show up at this medical center downtown Atlanta where I got, you know, rushed to the hospital. It, I think it was that night. I happened to just be looking at my phone, you know, on Facebook and his wife, he's not on Facebook because he's an attorney. He knows better. His wife was on there, and she said something like through Messenger. She said, you know, how you doing, da, da, da. And I said, oh, I'm doing good, you know. She said, no, I, I couldn't talk because my face was swollen. I hit the, hit the windshield face first. So my face, I lost three teeth and I split my lip and everything. I said, basically, you know, I'm doing okay, da, 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 da. And she goes, well, you know, if you ever need us, just let us know. And I said, well, funny you ask that. I do, I need, I need your husband. And she goes, oh, God what and i went i just got hit head on and, she, and so basically he became my attorney it was a road down uh, it was down a road that i never fathomed where where we are as a country with health care with insurance you know and, and that's just the tip of the iceberg with the the plethora of feelings you know my wife is feeling damn are you gonna get on that road bike again you know, and I'm thinking, how fast can I get back on it? Because to me, it's a part of my freedom. You know, it's a part of, you know, I just, it is. It really is. I haven't been on it much since the, the um, COVID started, since the pandemic started. I've been riding in my garage uh, on, on my trainer a lot. But about a year later, a little over a year later, I was on a group ride here in Atlanta, and I do the 6 to 7 a.m. That's you were laughing at last night, but that's the group I rode with because it's before rush hour. You know, it's a lot, lot, lot less traffic, so you got a good chance of getting home. And uh, I got back to the house, and I got an email from my group said, one of the leaders of the ride said, I want to make sure everybody got home as safely. I heard of, I heard, just heard of a fatality. And I was like, oh, Jesus, don't tell me this. Well, I was safe, and everybody in the group was safe. And he immediately came back and said, we need to get this gentleman a ghost bike. And I immediately replied, I got this. The frame that I was hit head on on a year and three months ago is hanging on my garage wall. I got it. I'll start building one today, and we'll, we'll place it, you know, within a couple of weeks. And... I started researching it, and in my mind, I started thinking about what I had just went down. The, I mean, just, it's just, it's staggering the amount of mental stuff you go through thinking like, I could have just abandoned my wife and daughters. You know, and it wasn't my fault. I don't get it. And the guy that hit me was 86 years old, probably shouldn't have been driving, but he got away with literally nothing. I mean, a settlement. I got a settlement, but I got to tell you, money don't fix it. You'll never, you'll never go back to where you were. You know, that freedom as a kid, it's never going to be there again. And so I started building the ghost bike, and about 
uh, about two weeks later, it was, uh, that gentleman got killed April 30th, 2012, uh, about a mile and a half from my house. And, uh, I put the ghost bike down there and it was met with unbelievable people that were just, they couldn't believe somebody else didn't know the guy. They couldn't believe somebody would do something like that. And I was like, that's tragic to me. That's, you know, I can't believe we wouldn't do something that minimal. But it, to me, it's the heartfelt feeling of showing somebody you have no, no clue of that they care. Just out of the blue, somebody cares. And so, but about the next, I don't know, 10 or 15 ghost bites, I didn't do anything. I mean, I did. I did. I built a ghost pipe, and I put a sign on it, you know, rest in peace, the person's name. And I would just go do, go place it at, like, 6 a.m. in the morning, like, in the dark. And then, you know, like, not not calling myself an angel, but, you know, like angels do, they just kind of show up and do their thing, and they leave. And, unfortunately, what people don't understand is that when I got hit, I was like, I, I wrote it down all on a piece of paper for about three months. Every three months, I would go back and rehash it, what I remembered. And when I got hit, I was laying on the asphalt. I hit his windshield and deflected off and landed on my back. And this person came up by and grabbed me by the back of the arm and said, here, i got to get you up and get you out of the road. And I, this lady helped me out of the road. I counted my steps because I had a blind friend when I was growing up. He always taught me to count steps. You know, if you don't know where you are, count your steps. That way at least you can kind of get close to, you know, where you are and stuff. If you have to go back and, you know, remember it. And I was three steps from the curb. I was literally almost through the intersection. This old man was cutting the corner, going down the wrong side of the street to uh, to get somewhere fast, I guess. And he hit me literally head on. I hit his right front finger well. And, uh, ejected up, hit his windshield, deflected off in the street on the other side of his car. And this lady helped me up and she sat me down and I couldn't see because my clear, it was in the middle of the day, like 1.30 in the afternoon. My goggles, my not goggles, they were like, you know, riding glasses, but they were clear because it was an overcast day. I didn't need, I didn't need sunglasses. And, um, I couldn't get them off my face because they were embedded in my nose from how hard I hit the windshield. They were in the cartilage of my nose. You know, right there at the bridge. And I couldn't see because of the blood that was all over in the fog. Obviously, the fog was all over my, my glasses. And I, I could see out the bottom. And so, you know, like 10, 12 seconds went by, and the lady said to me, here's a plaid, here's a shirt. Put it over your face because you're, you're, you're losing a lot of blood because my upper lip was split in half. My chin was split. I, you know, three teeth were damaged, my front three teeth. And uh, I said, oh, thank you. You know, I put it on my face. And then she said, I have to go. And I said, no, 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 please stay. And she goes, I have to go. And that was it. She was gone. Well, a day and a half later, the I had a witness that was there. A guy was walking his dog up the street, like 15 yards ahead of me. And when I saw the wheel well of a car and knew that what my writing on the wall was, I'm about to get into a damn crash, I hollered no at the top of my lungs. I mean, I was hoarse for about, a day and a half and that gentleman turned and he saw the whole thing well i called him a day and a half later when i could finally talk the swelling had gone down enough and i thanked him i said i thank you for being there 
I said, but I have to ask you a question. I said, a lady helped me up out of the street. And he said, there was no lady. And I said, oh, yes, there was. She grabbed me by the back of the arm and lifted me up off the road and helped me to the curb. And he said, there was no lady. It was you by yourself. And I was like, no. <laughs> Somebody helped me out of that road. Because she said, I have to get you out of the road in case somebody else drives up. And I, right then and there, realized that the guardian angel there somewhere. And this is possibly my second chance to make, to make an impact. And so that's where the ghost fights have, have really come from. Uh, you know, I feel tragically bad for these families. I know a lot of them personally. I, you know, we talk on Facebook a lot. Uh, the, the Gwens are down in Hilton Head now. Their husband, her husband, their fireman got killed on a training ride down in New Orleans and I built him a ghost bike and, uh, and you know, the, the lady, the first lady that I built one for her husband, she's on my board on Bike Friend Atlanta's board. And I talk with her, you know, quite often to check on her daughters. He's almost my age. You know, with two daughters about my daughter's age, and I'm just going, I can't imagine how we as a society allow this to happen over and over and over again. And we've done not one damn thing to stop it. I got goosebumps when you're telling that story. That was great. To me, all we have to do is slow people down, obey the laws. You're not going to get there any faster. You know, maybe a minute. <laughs> that ain't good. If you're more than a minute late leaving the house, you ain't going to get there a minute faster by speeding 15 miles an hour faster than the speed limit. You're also putting thousands of people's lives in danger by reducing your reaction time. And that additional speed is what causes fatalities. Yeah, you know, we can build all the bike paths you want. You can build all the protected bike lanes you want, you know, especially the ones off the road. They're safe. I get, I do. I put a ghost bike out for a 18 month old in Orlando, Florida, two years ago. Adeline Aziza, she was 18 months old in the, in the carrier behind her mom and dad. A lady ran off the road, hit the mom, the dad, and the little girl and killed the little girl. So I get it. That's a freak thing. I know that doesn't happen that often, but. Speed is killing people at a pandemic rate. End of story. And to me, until we slow people down and make them obey the laws that we have, we have speed limits. Why are we not closer to the speed limits is beyond me. And my mom was a driver's ed teacher, so I know all about it. I know why the speed limits are set at such. One of the hardest things I've ever done was about, about a month ago, my wish and what I've been doing for 10 years now is that I would never have to put a ghost bike out for a friend of one of my students, you know, one of my tennis students, you know, because they, they had a lot of friends. They go to a lot of different high schools around Atlanta. And, you know, Atlanta's like a lot of big cities. And one of my kids came up to me about a month ago and he said, one of my friends got killed down in Destin, Florida on a bicycle. I lost it and I, I lose it every time I talk about it. And I said, oh my God. And he goes, Theo was his name, and I was like, I remember Theo from when y'all were in high school. This is what I did not want to happen. When it goes full circle to where people 
that I know are losing friends that they know I got to hurry up and get something done because it's just not it's not what we're what we've been trying with all the bike lanes and bike paths it ain't working the people are not slowing down they're not being considerate so how are you going to get that one fixed first here in Georgia we lose 1500 people per year in a car fatality rate 1500 we if we could stop that i think cycling would fix itself I think we would well I think we would lower the number of people we're losing on bicycles and and pedestrians also because people would have to drive safer. That's the key. You still allow people to drive like they're in the wild wild west. You can put up a six foot cinder block wall and a, a cyclist won't be safe. A pedestrian won't be safe. They just they'll run through it. I know it. I see it all the time. Everybody needs to be responsible, but especially to me, especially the people in the cars. Because the onus on you is just basically to push a couple of pedals. You know, the cyclist, the runner, the walker, uh, everybody else has got to power their own vehicle. And they do have a certain level of responsibility to do it in a proper manner and in a, a predictable manner. But the person looking through the windshield needs to be not only looking through the windshield, but also in your rear view mirror, in your side view mirrors. That needs to be a constant thing. And... You know, look at everybody as somebody trying to get to work, somebody trying to get home to their loved ones, somebody trying to get to practice. You know, everybody's got somewhere to be, but when you're in a car, you need to also value what everybody else is doing and the life that they live because that could be your coach. That could be your doctor. That could be your teacher, your kid's teacher. And if you don't look at it that way, uh, instead of being an aggressive person, and at some reason that car does that to a lot of people, you know, it's kind of like the social media to a degree. It gives you something to hide behind, but they call it a vulnerable user law. I just think that people in a car should be held accountable for the way they drive. And if you've got multiple offenses, the guy that hit the first ghost bike recipient that I got had two DUIs within six months before he hit that gentleman from the rear. He didn't get a ticket for following too close. And guess what he did a month later? Got a third DUI within eight months. And how is he driving still? But, oh, well, you know, you, we, we don't want to take away a driver's license. Wrong. If you don't want to do it correctly, don't do it. Driving is a privilege. It is not a right in this country. So until we start taking that and using it, and making people drive properly, we're losing the battle. End of story. So when you're driving down the road, please, I implore you to see people walking people running, people on bicycles, they are not delays in your schedule. They are not the reason you're going to be late to work or late to a meeting. They are people just like you are. They are human beings that deserve to be treated like human beings. Please do so. Let's start saving lives instead of trying to find ways to avoid
a fatality charge, an assault charge in a car. That is the worst thing you can ever have happen to you, but it's happening more and more often every day, and it's affecting too many lives. I'm trying to put out about three or four ghost bikes this weekend. One of them is going to draw some attention because it's a cover-up case over, I think, in Cedartown, Georgia, where a guy got hit. He got hit. The guy that hit him went home, called the sheriff. The sheriff pondered it a few minutes. He called a state legislator, and he pondered it a few minutes, and a few minutes wound up being about 45 minutes. <laughs> and then finally the state legislator called an ambulance. The ambulance showed up, picked the guy up, and the guy died on the way down to the, to the hospital. And the coroner said, point blank, this guy would have lived if somebody would have called an ambulance first. And they were calling for the state legislators. Basically, you need to you need to renege your job. You're a piece of. And he was the last guy to get called, and he did call the ambulance finally. But there were so many delays. It, it obviously was. Oh, can we cover this up? And just things like that. I just sit and go. If I hit a dog or a deer, I'm gonna call the police really quick just to. Not file a police report, and I'm probably going to have to if I damage my car, but just to make sure I'm doing the right thing. You know, if they need to call animal pickup control or whatever, then fine. You know, at least I'm doing the right thing for the animal. If I hit a human, holy cow, what are you thinking to leave them there? I don't get it. And we think, we as society think, well, you know, in that situation, you never know what you would do. And I look at them and I go, you need to get slapped. <laughs> if, that ever, if that ever enters your mind when you hit something and you don't know what it is, if you don't make sure it wasn't a human, even if it was a dog or a deer, you're still going to call the police or somebody and say, hey, there's, you know, there's a deer out here on the road. What do I need to do? That's what I would do. But these people think, oh, well, I just drive off. You've lost your damn mind. You not only lose your, your ability to drive for the rest of your life, but you need to go in insane asylum somewhere. You're done. I mean, it, it really it offends me that a human would think that way. But, well, we could cover it. That comes down, to, yeah. that comes down yeah. to people not seeing cyclists as people. That's right. Or just, they or just see cyclists I mean, as you know, like... Yeah. Some outsider weirdo who's out there, and they're not. They're just people yeah. just trying to do their thing. You know, I hear people, you know, I've had several of my ghost bike people, they get hit late at night or something, and people are like, well, what are they out driving? Cycling at night. I said, well, maybe they're going to the store, and that's their transportation. And they look at me, and they go, well, they should have lights on. I said, well, yeah, if you had lights on, and it was dark, and you were going too fast, wouldn't you slow down so you could see far enough in front of your car so you wouldn't hit something like a person, a dog, a deer, something like that? Well, oh, yeah. Well, then why were you going so fast? And why why did you leave the scene of the accident? You think you were guilty? I think you just admitted it. But that's, you know, our our society, we don't, we don't look at things that way, you know, from an objective standpoint like, well, you know, like I heard somebody say one time, well, the sun was in my eyes. I said, well, damn, I guess there's not a sun visor in your car. 
I guess you don't have sunglasses. What the hell are you thinking? But, you know, we, we want to think, how do we get out of it instead of how do we prevent it? Maybe we can slow down a little bit. Oh, God forbid we do that. You might actually might smell some roses along life's line somewhere. You know, wow, that's what cyclists do. We, we enjoy the, the outside, you know, to breathe the air you're going through. It, it, that's part of cycling. That's what I like about it. But, ooh, man, seeing some of these people, they need to get out a little more often, you know? It, it's crazy. <laughs> It's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Absolutely, Tom. Take care. Bye. Take care, buddy. Bye-bye. So back in 2020, I finally tried a electric bike. It wasn't the latest or the greatest. Brand was an EG and the model was a Maui. Set up sort of like a step through hybrid with a front suspension, disc brakes and a Shimano seven speed. So definitely not the latest and greatest, but it was pretty good for a soon to be stormy afternoon up in upstate New York. By the way, this is less JD Powers and more Wicked Casual. I'm on an electric bike in upstate New York. My mother-in-law's, one of them is a cyclist and the other one isn't. They got this electric bike so they could go on bike rides together. Right now I'm checking it out. It's not the newest. It's not the latest. But it's interesting. What it looks like, it's got a step-through frame. It's got a few extra buttons on it that you wouldn't normally see on a regular bicycle. So for those of you who don't know about electric bikes, the deal is you can be assisted in your pedaling or you have a throttle. The assist in the pedaling has different modes of assist. So here's the first mode low, there's medium, and there's high. And I'm going quite fast right now. Then there's also a throttle on the other side. I pretty much sat on the sidelines for a while with the electric bike issues. Just kind of watching the whole thing unfold. And the first thing right off the bat is I love adaptive technology. So anything that can help anybody else to enjoy life. From that angle, I'm a huge fan of electric and electric assist bikes. When it comes to competition, me and a lot of us are playing these virtual games on Strava, etc. On that front, I think it's totally not fair to have an electric bike go against somebody on a non-assisted bike. And I think that that just simply comes down to listing your ride as being on an electric bike or an electric assist bike, and then you can compete against folks with that. When it comes to the economics of electric bikes, I'm really still torn. Well, on one hand, I'm a big advocate of quality and having something that's going to last several years and not be disposable. I think the outrageous price tags on some of these bikes smells a lot like exploitation by the industry. And as with anything, I'd like to see some universal standards and some cross-compatibility. 
I'd hate to think all these multi-thousand dollar bikes are going to be just thrown away in about 10 years. I mean, that's what we all like about bicycles is that they are kind of dependable. And if they're a well-made bike, you can get a lifetime out of them. And on another side, I'm also a little hesitant because I see that people are getting upsold on electric bikes. In some cases, rightfully so, but in other cases where they could probably get away with a conventional bike. Psychologically, that tipping point and that initial barrier of cost might keep some people out of the game. And finally, there's a lot of design issues that haven't been going great with these bikes. There are many different companies trying to jump in and cash in, and some of them just look like a motorcycle with pedals. And while that looks cool, it doesn't really create a great cycling experience. In those situations, it really is an electric motorcycle with pedals added on as an afterthought. But at their best, I see some huge potential benefits, especially helping folks as they get older to continue to go out on really long hilly rides. So I'm not going to come down definitively on any of this stuff today. This is a quick little ride around a dirt road. Sometimes you can hear the engine, other times the tires, and every once in a while you'll hear the buzzing of the chain guard and the fenders. The bike was quite heavy and that made a lot of vibrations too. In general, it was a good time. I had fun and just like any other bicycle, if you get a chance to throw a leg over one and take it for a roll, go for it. Ooh, it just started raining and I'm on an electric bike. I think I'll hightail it for home. But it's fun. They're pretty damn expensive. And they're not always the best cycling bike. So this bike by itself is kind of just a little bit lighter than what you would imagine an old moped would be like. Oh, here it comes. Here comes the rain. It's got nice French shocks. It's got big tires and a drop frame. But by itself, you would not want to pedal this bike around very much. It's just too heavy. Ah. But if you need some assistance with your pedaling, it's gotta be a good option. It's better to be out there than not be out there at all. So if you get a chance, it's just, it's just fun. It's all good. One less car. From the Bike Karma Podcast, my really informal, really laid-back electric bike review. Thanks for coming along for the ride on another episode of the Bike Karma Bicycle and Cycling Stories podcast. I've been your host, Tom Brown. I hope you like the stories I'm putting out and how the process has evolved over the last few years. Hopefully these stories make some connections between different people around the world. There's enough things in the world dividing us. As humans who cycle, we have a heck of a lot in common too. It makes me smile to remember that and that's part of why I do this. Anyway, as always, a big thank you to Mobjack and Keller Glass for our opening and closing theme music. You can hear Keller Glass talking about his craft in one of our previous episodes, or you can go check out his music at kellerglass.com or mobjackmusic.com. 
All the other music in the episode is royalty-free, and I appreciate those musicians as well. Thanks to everyone listening in all 50 states and over 90 countries. It's truly humbling and amazing. If you have comments, questions, uh, story idea, maybe you want some stickers to responsibly place around the world, or maybe you have a product or service that you'd like to advertise on the program, any of those, you can contact me at bikekarmaguy at gmail.com. That's bikekarmaguy at gmail.com. The Bike Karma Podcast is the intellectual property of Thomas Brown. All rights, including trademarks and copyrights, are reserved and asserted. That is, with the exception of the music. So yeah, I was hoping to get this episode out before the end of December. Um, as you can see, that didn't happen, but I appreciate everybody being patient and waiting. I try and put some love into each episode and need the energy to do that sit down at the computer and right now I'm looking at a beautiful sunset hoping that till next time you keep it wheel take care